But I really think this is a great time for us to step up and advocate to the CDC and to the state medical boards for people with ALS to be included in that next phase. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson, joined by my friend, colleague, and co-host on the East Coast, Jeremy Holden. How are you on this fine January day, Jeremy? Uh, Doing great, Mike. How about you? I'm feeling energized. There is a new administration in the White House, and President Biden has made clear in the weeks leading up to taking office that wrapping up COVID-19 vaccine production and distribution would be a top priority during the all-important first 100 days of his presidency. And for our show this week, Jeremy, we brought back one of the world's foremost ALS experts to weigh in on what families living with ALS can expect in terms of vaccine access and efficacy. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Dr. Richard Bedlack joined us uh, to talk through where we are and what we know about the COVID vaccine, COVID-19 pandemic numbers continuing to look alarming. And of course, you know, we're bringing this conversation to listeners uh, just one day after the inauguration you alluded to. And, and in his inaugural address, President Biden did uh, pause to reflect on the 400,000 Americans who have lost their lives to COVID. So I can't think of a better time to check in with Dr. Bedlack to see where we are, what we know, and when people in the ALS community might expect to be eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Bedlack is one of the busiest people in the field, and we feel fortunate that he was able to make time to connect with us once again. In addition to the vaccine discussion, we asked him about his ongoing research on ALS reversals. So make sure you listen to the full interview for an update on his ROAR trials. Today, we welcome back to the show someone who really needs no introduction, but for the uninitiated, he is the director of the world-renowned Duke ALS Clinic and the mind behind ALS Untangled. Dr. Richard Bedlack. Dr. Bedlack, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us today on Connecting ALS. Hey, it's great to be back with you, Mike. Thanks for having me. It is always excellent to connect with you, and we appreciate your time. And last time we had you on, we discussed off-label and alternative treatments for ALS. And today, we're going to go a little bit broader with a topic that's on really everyone's mind, but raises some unique questions for the ALS community. I'm referring to the COVID-19 vaccines that are starting to roll out in the U.S., as well as other corners of the globe. Let's start with the big question, doctor. What do we know today about whether and when people living with ALS will be eligible to be vaccinated? So Mike, you know, each state is determining its own vaccine prioritization. And as of today, which is January 18th, 2021, it looks to me like all states are offering it now to frontline healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. I got mine uh, probably three or four days after the FDA approved it. And now most states are also offering it to anyone who's age 65 or older. Now the next prioritization category in most states is supposed to include people with so-called high risk medical conditions, conditions that increase their risk of a severe outcome from COVID-19. I suspect that most states are gonna use the list of these conditions that are on the CDC website Mm. And as you probably know, ALS is actually not on that list. Yep. I believe it should be, and I can give you four reasons. Please. First, I think people with ALS are especially reliant on caregivers and equipment vendors coming in and out of their homes. So they really can't self-isolate to the degree that others can to reduce their risk of infection. Second, people with ALS frequently have pulmonary conditions and even cognitive conditions. 
which are analogous to other um, conditions that are on that high risk CDC list, mm -hmm. like COPD, asthma, and dementia. Those are all on there. Third, some of us are now starting to witness prolonged morbidity and even faster disease progression in our patients with ALS following their infection with COVID. Mm. This might have to do with the ability of COVID to cause neuroinflammation, which we think is part of the pathophysiology of ALS. That's been a very recent uh, discovery that's been published. Mm. And then finally, we actually have data from the VA medical system. You know, we've looked at a cohort of patients that include people with spinal cord injury, MS, and ALS. And it looks like that cohort has about a tenfold increase in mortality wow. from COVID infection compared to the general population. But, you know, to get back to your question, the short answer is if you're a person with ALS and you're 65 and older, you probably can get the vaccine in most states now. For those who are under the age of 65, we're going to have to wait and see what each state does, you know, how it defines the next prioritization category, who's going to be included. But I really think this is a great time for us to step up and advocate to the CDC and to the state medical boards for people with ALS to be included in that next phase. Yeah, that's a great point, Dr. Bedlack. And the ALS Association, of course, is out, as we've mentioned, and we can put some documentation in the show notes for folks to look at, look into. But the ALS Association is committed to working with uh, federal, state, and local health officials to make sure that people with ALS can get the vaccine as soon as possible. There's some questions, I guess, that some folks have raised about safety and efficacy. You know, reports are that the vaccines are 90, 95% effective. What do we know about people with ALS and the safety and efficacy of these vaccines for the community that, that we're talking to today? Well, let's start off by making sure that everybody understands that, you know, 90 to 95% effectiveness, what that means. Mm -hmm. So the trials defined a COVID infection as having symptoms that were suggestive and also having a positive COVID test. And when they looked at all the people in a trial that had a so-called COVID infection defined in that way, 95% of them were in the placebo group and only 5% were in the group that got the real vaccine. Hmm. So that's where they get this idea that the vaccines are 90 to 95% effective. Unfortunately, it's not clear that anyone with ALS was actually included in the vaccine trials. If, if there was anyone, it, it wasn't very many people. Hmm. I can't think of a reason that people with ALS would respond differently in terms of efficacy or safety, but I think it would be great to see someone step up and create maybe a registry of people with ALS who get COVID infections to see what happens, and also those who get COVID vaccines. You know, right now we keep hearing that the vaccines are considered pretty safe for just about everyone. The one exception is folks who have a known allergy to any of the ingredients in the vaccines. Thanks for that background as well, Doctor. Interesting to know kind of how they determine that efficacy rate for the vaccines. You mentioned no reason to assume that there would you know, be any adverse impact for someone living with ALS, but we, we just don't know because we don't have that data. And there have been questions kind of all along throughout the development. I say all along. It's, it's been <laughs> a year since we even started making these vaccines. It's pretty incredible that we are where we are and have come this far. But the long-term impact of, of a vaccine like this, people still are asking questions about that. And again, we, we don't know because people are just starting to receive them. 
But based on what you've heard and, and the data that you've seen and what you've read, do you believe that there's a chance that there would be any sort of long-term issue with receiving the vaccine? You know, it seems unlikely to me. I think, you know, uh, whenever you're dealing with a complex topic like this, you have to sort of pick your champion. You know, it's, it's impossible for me to, at the end of my day, you know, taking care of people with ALS, working on my research, designing my next group of studies, to then go, you know, into the literature and read every article that's being published about COVID-19 and the COVID vaccine. So I've just had to decide, you know, who are, who are the people I'm going to trust? And here at, at my institution, we have some amazing infectious disease people. And so I kind of pay close attention to what they're saying. And, you know, they tell me that it looks to them like this is very safe in the long term. It's, it's important to understand how these vaccines work. They're a little different than any vaccine I know of that ever came before. You know, these vaccines are using something which is called messenger RNA, mRNA. And, you know, when they inject that mRNA, it gets into cells near the injection site. And it induces, induces those cells to start producing proteins that look like the ones the coronavirus has. And in that way, it revs up the immune system. So the immune system of a person attacks those new proteins, and now the immune system is ready. So if that person ever gets exposed to the real coronavirus, the immune system's already been primed. But the mRNA uh, does not seem to stay around very long. You know, that injected mRNA gets broken down you know, very quickly by the body. So there shouldn't really be any long-term consequences to these vaccines. So how does it work then once someone gets the vaccine? Is this back to normal? I don't have to wear a mask. I can go about my life, go to a football game, whatever it is I want to do. How does that look, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question, Jeremy. I, I wish that was the case. But, you know, it turns out even after we're all vaccinated, we're probably still going to need to wear masks and practice social distancing. The virus is going to be with us for a long time many months, possibly even years. And, you know, the vaccines are effective, but we said earlier, 90 to 95% effective. That's not 100% effective. Mm. The other thing is it takes time for the vaccines to work. Mm -hmm. You know, when I got my first vaccine, I was all excited. I, I felt like I was now like protected and turns out, you know, that was wrong. So there's a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that suggests that you get some protection about 12 days after the first shot and about 50% effectiveness a few weeks after the first shot. And even after the second shot, it takes about a week to get up to 95% effectiveness. Hmm. So we just have to be a little bit careful about, about you know, tossing caution to the wind. Even when we're vaccinated, there's still going to be a risk. Yeah, patience is, is so critical. And, and I think, I hope that, that most people feel as we've come this far, you get that vaccine, you can go a little bit further and continue to be patient, continue to be safe, and practice social distancing. Is it reasonable to uh, assume, Dr. Bedlack, that COVID vaccines uh, may be part of our future for a number of years? And what I mean by that is in the way that you get an annual flu shot, would you potentially get a COVID booster in that shot or something separate, maybe every other year? Do we know anything about that yet? I mean, the short answer is I don't know. We, we've been hearing about these new strains mm. of COVID-19 that are popping up. I mean, that's what happens with the flu. That's what happens with a lot of viruses is that they mutate. Um, and that's why we have to keep getting a flu shot every year because the specific strains of flu change that we're at risk for. And the one that we got last year, you know, the, the new flu that comes out this year may look different enough that our immune system would not be ready for it. 
Mm. And I think it's just too early to know what's going to happen with COVID-19. So far, what the champions I trust are telling me is that it looks like the vaccines we have are still going to be effective against the newest strains. But I don't think anyone knows if a year from now there'll be a strain that comes out that is resistant to these vaccines. I just don't think we know. So I think that covers the COVID side of things. I, I don't have any other questions. Mike, I think you had an additional question that pivoted a little bit. Yeah, I want to talk about I want to talk about Roar Doctor and just kind of see how that's going. I know in August you started up the the second Roar trial, and obviously you probably don't have a ton of data from that yet. Uh, but for those who who are still unfamiliar and maybe don't know what you're trying to do with Roar, can you give us a little background on that project and and, and where you're at right now? Yeah, so the background starts with this concept of an ALS reversal. So an ALS reversal is a person with a confirmed diagnosis of ALS, meaning I have to actually have their medical records and review on myself and agree with whoever their treating doctor is that the diagnosis is right. And then their disease has to progress to where they're disabled from it. And then they have to unexpectedly and dramatically recover lost motor functions. So, you know, some examples of ALS reversals, I've got you know, people who were completely paralyzed in their arms and legs who, after a few years, you know, gradually recovered to where they could walk, run, stack firewood. I've got people who were dependent upon ventilators who recovered to where they don't need the ventilator anymore. As of today, I know of 49 ALS reversals from all over the world. And it's important to understand that there's a lot of possible explanations for these. So one explanation is that maybe some of the treatments that these folks decided to take were the reason that their ALS recovered. Hmm. And to test this theory, I've created this whole um, program called ROAR, Replication of ALS Reversals. It's basically a series of small pilot trials of products that are associated with ALS reversals. Now, because I'm looking for such a huge effect, I'm looking for a recovery not just a slight slowing in the progression of the disease, these ROAR trials can look very different than most ALS trials that are looking for small effects mm. in a noisy disease. So my ROAR trials can have very wide inclusion criteria. My ROAR trials don't need a placebo group. We're going to use historical controls. My ROAR trials can be virtual, meaning that we can, we can accomplish them through the phone or through the computer like this, as opposed to people having to come to clinic to have things measured. And the other nice thing about these trials is that when we do it virtually, that means we're creating some sort of online database. In this case, we're using patients like me, and that's publicly accessible. So as opposed to most trials where people have to wait sometimes years to find out the results, the results of my ROAR trials are available in real time. Anybody can go onto the website, patients like me, and, and look at what's happening in people with ALS who are on one of these products in my ROAR trials. And then finally, unlike most trials, I'm just publishing my protocols on a website, alsreversals.org. And this is because I am acutely aware that people all over the world want to try things. And they don't always get great guidance on the different things that are out there that they can try. And so I know not everybody is going to, you know, know about my ROAR trials, be able to get into my ROAR trials. By putting the protocol out there, you know, hopefully I'm giving them something they can take to their own doctor and self-experiment with, you know, with a very specific brand name product at a very specific dose for a specific duration. So maybe it gives them something that's, that's more reasonable 
than some other things to self-experiment with. And so, as you mentioned, you know, my second ROAR trial opened in August and uh, it's, roar, it's, you know, rolling along. We've got 13 people enrolled. Most of them now are on the product that we're studying, which is called Theracurmin. Hmm. It's a form of curcumin. And uh, we're hoping to get 50 people enrolled in this study and every person is going to take it for six months. And, you know, hopefully what we see is that some people's ALS reverses, but we will also learn something else from this. And that is something about the microbiome, the family of organisms that live in all of our GI tracts. There's uh, more and more evidence that this family of organisms might influence the progression of ALS. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to be looking at fast progressors versus slow progressors in this trial to see if their microbiomes are different, people with ALS versus healthy controls. And I'm going to see if I can change the microbiome with Theracurmin because it may be that a subset of people look like they respond to this and it would be fascinating to see if those are the ones whose microbiome changes in a certain way. If that's the case, we might be able to design another type of therapy, a probiotic that changes the microbiome and reverses ALS. Wow. Yeah, a hopeful note there uh, as we turn the calendar and, and are often running into 2021. And a reminder, Dr. Bedlock, that research continues to go forward amidst the pandemic and, and despite and overcoming the challenges. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing in, in the world of, of medical research, ALS research, as we are now in, in month 12 of a global pandemic? Yeah, I mean, for sure, the, the pandemic it took us all by surprise. And um, it really hampered our ability to do a lot of things the way that we used to do them. I'm not talking about, you know, just going out to restaurants and traveling and things like that. It, it really challenged the way that we take care of people with every disease. You know, we, we had a model for taking care of people with ALS where folks would actually come to us and be seen in person by a large multidisciplinary team and get lots of measurements, including pulmonary function tests, and where we would use those measurements to figure out you know, when and how to offer different options to them. And uh, of course, you know, we, we couldn't fix the disease, but the model clearly showed that we could improve quality of life for people and extend life pretty significantly. And then all of a sudden, a lot of us couldn't see patients in clinic anymore. And a lot of us couldn't, and, and some people still can't get any pulmonary function tests. Hmm. And you know, the same thing happened to research. We were doing uh, most of our research studies a certain way with you know, in-person visits uh, for consent and for screening and for follow-up of safety and in-person visits for measurements of things like pulmonary functions. And all of a sudden, a lot of us couldn't do it. So we've learned ways around it. You know, we've learned ways to see people more safely in clinic, ways to more safely do pulmonary function tests. But at the same time, we learned about uh, entirely new ways to take care of folks, you know, like virtual multidisciplinary clinics. And we learned, um, you know, that we probably can do research in different ways with a lot more virtual visits, you know, with novel surrogate outcome measures that substitute for the traditional in-person pulmonary function tests. And so as a result, you know, we've been able to ramp up again. And I think that we're better than we've ever been. I mean, I think in a way the pandemic was a good thing because it showed us that there might be a way to take care of folks with ALS that has, you know, much lower burdens for them and works, you know, probably just as well as what we were doing before. 
Dr. Bedlack, thank you so much for your time today for answering our important questions around the vaccine in the ALS community, as well as giving us a critical update on research that is ongoing despite the pandemic and a look into your own ROAR trials. We'll make sure to put information on that in our show notes so people can check out what you're doing. It's so great having you on, doctor. Thank you. I really appreciate being with you again, Mike and Jeremy, and I hope you have a good rest of your week. Well, thank you again to Dr. Richard Bedlock for that insightful walk through the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and as you said at the top, Mike, uh, his his ROAR trials. So always great to have Dr. Bedlack on. And Mike, next week, we have an exciting guest lined up and we're going to be looking into the first 100 days of the Biden administration, with a particular angle on health policy and, and where uh, the debates over health policy go from here. So really looking forward to uh, that conversation. Yeah, that's going to be great. Much to get into there. So be sure to tune in next week. That's going to put a bow on this week's show. We appreciate those of you streaming us from your favorite podcast apps. Remember, you can subscribe to the show from any one of those apps or directly from our website at connectingals.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter to make sure you have access to all of the latest content. This episode is produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening, and we'll connect with you again soon. Mm-hmm.